Our scripture is in Joshua 8. You can find that in your bulletin or in your Bible. Joshua 8, 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given you into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoils and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand towards Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against their pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the, at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. Would you join me with a word of prayer? God of all mercy, you are a faithful God, and you never break your promises to your people. And Lord, we live amidst of a culture and a generation where promises are weak. Words are careless. Words are always changing. So this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would speak your eternal word to us that never changes so that we may respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, early in my college days, I ran across a poster with a picture on it, and it'll be up on the screen here. Uh, this picture, not there yet, is a, is a uh, yeah, it's a photomicrograph of a processor. And I hope you guys are not getting tired of these illustrations. Uh, but so I, I ran across this. This actually is Intel's 8386 processor. 
and I know I'm dating myself, right? Um, it runs at a blazing fast 20 megahertz. It has 275,000 transistors, devices that are no bigger than the width of a human hair. They're much, much smaller than that. Uh, and so I ran across this in my college days, and it was then when I saw it, it captured my heart, it captured my imagination, and I said, I want to do that. That's what I want to study. And so I did that. I studied that. I uh, graduated from college and entered into the semiconductor industry, and I spent a lot of time designing these types of devices. And one of the areas that I specialized in uh, was an area called battery monitoring or battery management. Uh, what do these circuits do? Well, if you've got a cell phone, if you've got a laptop computer, that tiny little circuit, it's regulating the operation of the battery regulating the operation. It's ensuring that the battery is operating within healthy limits, healthy boundaries. Now, I'm sure that you've probably heard long ago these stories about cell phones catching fire, right? burning people, laptops catching fire. I don't think I've heard of it for many years, and that's because we've got these circuits that are now actually working to protect you. And isn't it amazing that we trust our lives basically to something that can fit on the tip of your finger. These tiny little circuits, they're preventing us from being burned, it's preventing us from burning our house down, it's preventing planes from falling out of the sky because of fires. Well, it's the same way with God's word. God has given his word to his people to monitor our lives, to make sure that God's people are living in a healthy manner, operating within healthy bounds, right? Because boundaries are a good thing. Regulation is a good thing. It prevents us from harm. And so God's word provides a check on our lives, a check that danger is there, that we could do harm to ourselves, we could do harm to our family, we could do harm to our church and community. Well, we're gonna see this principle, regulation through God's word, as we unpack Joshua chapter 8. We're going to see Joshua in Joshua chapter 8 that the people of God would be renewed and regulated. But before we get to that, we're going to see first, by way of outline, Israel's recovery. We're going to see secondly, Israel, sorry, Israel's restoration. Then we're going to see Israel's recovery. And then lastly, we're going to look at Israel's renewal and their regulation. But before we jump into uh, our story today, I uh, just want to give you another rewind, recap. Where are we at in the story of Joshua? Well, Joshua chapter 6, you guys remember, is the great story of an extraordinary victory for Israel, right? The wall comes down because God causes the wall to come down and gives Israel an extraordinary victory. And then in chapter 7, last week, Mike preached on a stunning defeat at AI. And so I'm going to pronounce it AI. John pronounced it IE, AI, IE, whichever. It's, it's fine. Uh, a stunning defeat, and why is that? It's because of hidden, hidden sin. Because Achan, he saw, he coveted, he took, he concealed his sin, and because of that, judgment fell upon him. Realize that Achan committed a high crime against God, right? He stole from God. What belonged to God? You know, some of the things were under the ban to be destroyed, but some of the things, like the gold and the silver, According to chapter 6, 
was to be holy to the Lord. It was meant for the Lord. It was meant to be put in the treasury of the Lord. So when, when Achan took the gold and he took the silver and he, and he hid it in his tent, guess what? He committed high crime against God because he stole against God. And he suffered the curse of the law and the curse of disobedience. And he was stoned. And then at the end of chapter seven, what do we see these words? After the sin was dealt with, we see that the Lord turned from his burning anger. And so we have this stunning defeat. I love how Mike captured it. He said it's just like the University of Georgia going in and bullying Kent State or some other lesser team, but they actually lose. They get routed. This is where we're at when we start chapter 8. So let's look now at the first point, which is Israel's restoration. What do we do now? We're here at AI. We've lost. Let's look at how Israel is restored. Verses 1 and 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now, when we look at Israel's restoration, there's just a couple things I want to point out here. Uh, one is the encouragement that Joshua and the people receive from the Lord. And secondly, is the reaffirmation of God's promises to his people. So let's look first at that encouragement. The encouragement comes here. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. And if you've been with us in this series, or if you remember what's going on in Joshua, you would have remembered that God said this to Joshua over in chapter 1. Why is that? Well, Moses had died. He was the leader of the nation. Now Joshua's in that position, and he is facing the obstacle of crossing the river and going into the land and defeating the people in the land. He needed to be encouraged. And so here in chapter 8, why is this coming again from God? Well, Israel has suffered a stunning defeat, and God brings this encouragement to him. And then we see the reaffirmation of God's promise See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, the city, the people, the land. God is reaffirming the promise that he had given all the way in chapter 1. Now, I want you to realize this. Think about these first two verses and where they're landing in history. What if God left out the encouragement, left out the reaffirmation? He could have done that. You know, we could, have, we could have ended chapter 7 saying, the Lord turned away from his burning anger, sin was dealt with, and now lay in ambush. In other words, go ahead, obey me, get going, get moving. But the scriptures don't do that. They include these details for a reason. And the reason is this, that God restores his people gently. It tells us something about the character of God. He's gentle in the way he restores his people. He's taking the time to encourage Joshua and the people right after this big failure. And he's saying to them that their failure is not going to annul. It's not going to make void my promise to you. My promise still stands. Well, Robert Robertson, uh, he's known for uh, writing the hymn, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing. We sung it today. And later in his life, uh, he began to wander from the Lord. Uh, he was very distressed by this. 
And so he took to travel to distract himself. And the story goes like this. When he was traveling, he came upon a woman who was thinking and meditating about this hymn that she had heard. Um, And he begins to dialogue with her about it. And he doesn't disclose to her that he's the author, actually, of that hymn she's talking about. And then at some point in the conversation, he begins to weep. And he confesses to her and he says this. I am the man who wrote that hymn many years ago. I'd give anything to experience the joy I knew then. And listen to what the woman says. The streams of mercy in the hymn still flowed. The streams of mercy in the hymn still flowed. And Robinson, he broke down. He was cut to the heart and his wandering heart returned to the Lord. Why? Because he was gently reminded that God's promises still stand. His mercy is still there. The streams of mercy are never ceasing. They are new every morning. And his sin and his wandering, it didn't annul God's promises to him. And maybe you're here this morning, and that's exactly what you need to hear. Maybe you've blown it big time, And you need to hear that God's promises to you are not void. They don't evaporate. They don't disappear because you blew it, because you sinned. His promises still remain. Why? Because they are based on his very character, who he is. He is the unchanging. He's the eternal God. And we can trust him because he is eternal. One of the last things to note before we leave these two verses is that little detail, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Now, isn't this interesting? Remember in chapter six, they weren't supposed to touch that stuff, supposed to destroy it or dedicate it to the Lord. And here now, the Lord is saying, you can have it. And we can't help but think, oh, if Achan would have just waited a little bit, if he would have just waited a little bit, the wrath would not have befallen him. And you begin to wonder about Achan, you know, did he have this picture of God as a miserly God, a miserly father holding on to the blessings, holding on to the goodness, and he would have to go and get it for himself. Is that the way that we view God? Are we running ahead of God and trying to get goodness and blessing for ourselves, and not waiting for him? Or do we realize that we have a heavenly father who longs to bless us, the longs to pour out good gifts to their children, just like you parents at Christmas time love to lavish goodness on your children. That's the father we have. He's not holding on to these blessings and promises Right? He longs to give them to his children. So that's a warning for us. Can we wait for God to bring blessing to us? Well, that's a little bit about point one, Israel's restoration, how God gently restores his people. Now let's look at the second point, Israel's recovery in verses 18 through 22. Now I'm not gonna read all of those verses again, but I will do this for you. I'm gonna just recount the battle plan, the battle, what's exactly happening here, right? So what what happens here is they're going to lay an ambush. And so Joshua is going to take his forces. He's going to divide his forces. He's going to set some of the forces behind the city, hiding. And he's going to have some of the forces 
approach just like last time. And so as that, that, that second force approaches just like last time, the king and the army of Ai, they're going to see it, and they're going to do exactly what they did in chapter 7. They're going to come out, and they're going to wage war against Israel. But this time, just this last time, what does Israel do? They turn and they run. They flee. But they are pretending this time, right? They're pretending this time. And so when the men of Ai are drawn out of the city and they're, they're chasing Israel, the men that are laying in ambush behind the city are going to go into that defenseless city. They're going to destroy it. They're going to burn it with fire. And then the men of Ai, as they're battling, they're going to see the smoke rising. And then they're going to realize that their city is destroyed. And Israel, who was in the city, are going to come out, and Ai is going to be caught in the middle of the armies of God, and they are going to be destroyed. And so what I want to say about this as we look at Israel's recovery, how they recover from a colossal failure is this, that they trust and they obey God. And I want you to note this contrast. I hope you follow me with this contrast. At Jericho, a mighty obstacle of a wall, God works in an extraordinary way to knock down that wall. But here at AI, there's this detail that it's a small army, right? It's a know-nothing army. It's Kent State. But God uses ordinary means this time to accomplish the victory for Israel. But here is the point. The same way, this, what is common for both of them is that the victory is given by what? Not those means, but it's given by the Lord. Whether it's a big obstacle or a small obstacle, the victory is from the Lord. It's not from Israel in their own means. And so for us this morning, as we approach big things, I know that a lot of times when we, we hit huge obstacles and challenges, we're, we're readily going to the Lord, yeah, and inquiring of the Lord and asking for his help. But do you ask his help when you're approaching that Kent state, that little obstacle? We ought to approach the Lord in everything and trust in everything and we see as this battle plan is, is playing out, we see this simply, that Joshua and Israel are obeying. They are following the command of the Lord. And so when we blow it big time, we have many options of how we can recover, right? Some of us, uh, we're just going to give up. We're going we're gonna to throw in the towel and say, I'm not going to fight anymore. What's the use? Or we may get apathetic and begin to not care. Well, here, I want you to see that obedience to God, simple obedience to God, getting back up into the fight, obedience to God is the best way to recover from disobedience. When you disobey God, you have so many options of what you can do. What you ought to do is fall back to obeying God. Now, one of the most colossal failures of faith in the Bible. You guys probably know this story. There's a story of Peter. And I'll, I'll review a little bit of this for you guys to bring you up to speed if you don't know the story. Uh, Peter was a disciple of Christ. He had made an amazing confession. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, he, he knows that this is God incarnate. And then he says later on in the Gospels, you know, if, you know, I'm going to, to stay allied with you. I have allegiance to you. I'm going to follow you even to the death. I'm never going to deny you. And then what do we know about Peter's story? 
Unfortunately, he denies him three times. Horrible, horrible, colossal failure of faith. Do you remember how Jesus restores him in John chapter 21? How gently he restores him? Do you love me, Peter? Three times he asks him, do you love me, Peter? And Peter responds. And how does Jesus respond? He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He's giving him a command. He's asking him to pick himself up from his colossal failure, from his disobedience, and to do what? To obey me. Obey me, Peter. And how does Peter respond? If you, if you look through the, the first third of the book of Acts, you see exactly this. You see the apostle Peter tending to the flock of God in submission to Christ. A lifetime of tending to the flock of God. Not just a moment. He does that all the way to his death. Now, do you think Peter is saying to himself all along, man, I really have to obey the Lord. I've got to do it. God requires me to do this. I'm going to obey him. Or do you think he has a different attitude? He, that, that I get to obey God in this. I get to follow him. I've got another chance to follow him. I think you guys know the answer to that. Peter's heart was captured by a God who laid down his life for him so that his sins could be forgiven, so that he could gently restore Peter back into fellowship with himself. And so Peter's obedience is arising from the fact that he has been dearly loved. Right? His obedience is not to gain love or favor. It's because he already has the favor of God shining upon him. And so for you this morning, I would ask this question just as a barometer. Where are you at with this? Are you here this morning sitting under God's word, reading his Bible, thinking, man, I have to. God requires it of me. I have to obey these scriptures. And it's a drudgery for you at times. Or do you feel the pleasure that you get that you get to obey him? And the answer to that question is gonna tell us, it's gonna tell you in your heart how much you really understand, how much you really have grasped the gospel of grace. Well, let's look now at that last point, Israel's renewal and their regulation in verses 30 through 35. That last portion of scripture there, um, I'm not gonna read all of those verses for you again, but I want to recount what exactly is going on in those verses, okay? So you'll find in verse 30 that we are now at Shechem. We are in a valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. That's 20 miles north of where Ai is. And so somehow we fast forward in time. The, the, the plot has zipped forward in time, and we are here. Uh, and we see Joshua. He's building an altar on one of those mountains, Mount Ebal. And then he's separating out his people and saying, six tribes, you know, stand in front of Mount Ebal, six tribes in front of Mount Gerizim. And the six tribes in front of Mount Gerizim, what are they going to do? They're going to pronounce blessings for obedience. And then the six tribes in front of Mount Ebal, they're going to pronounce curses for disobedience. And then Joshua is going to be up on Mount Ebal doing what? He's writing the law on 
stones again, stones of remembrance so that people can see. And this is a recurring theme that we see in the book of Joshua, right? We saw this when they crossed the river, pulling out the stones and setting them up as a remembrance of God's mighty work. We've seen the stones being piled over Achan as a warning, a merciful warning of sin. We've seen the stones even in this narrative being heaped upon the king of Ai, another warning of breaking the covenant, being an enemy to God. And now we see the stones to remind us of the importance of God's word. Well, what's the point in what we're seeing here? What we're seeing here is a covenant renewal ceremony, a renewal of the relationship of the people with their God, okay? And God is setting before them only two ways to live. And he's saying, choose. Obedience, disobedience. Blessing, curse. Life, death, you choose. Moses, before he dies, before the people cross into the land, he gives the, the, the people of Israel this charge in Deuteronomy 30. Listen to how important these words are. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. And realize this. If, if you're to go back and read through Deuteronomy 27 through 30 and, and read all the blessings and read all the curses for disobedience, you're going to see some of those curses are things like you're going to be cast out of the land. You're going to lose the land. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be exiled. And Francis Schaeffer, he notes this about these last verses in Joshua chapter 8. He says this is the key. This is the key. If you want to understand judges, if you want to understand kings, if you want to understand why the people end up in exile, if you want to understand the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity, and you want to understand Jerusalem being destroyed, it's right here in these six verses. This is the key. And so what we have here in this covenant renewal is, is the opportunity to choose Life. We also see here the centrality of God's word for God's people. Look at verse 34 with me. It says, And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. And so like those tiny transistors that we are that we're trusting our life to, that we're not going to get burned, the word of God is given to God's people to monitor us, to regulate our lives, to make sure that we are operating within healthy bounds, right? To warn us when we are approaching those limits that there is danger, that there is harm. There's harm for ourselves. There's harm for our family. There's harm for our entire community. God's word is given to us as a way of blessing, a way of life. Listen to how it's talked about in Psalm 1, the first three verses. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see, God has given a way for his people to flourish. And that's within the bounds of his word. Just within the bounds of his word. And so in this covenant renewal ceremony, we see that God has presented us two ways to live. How will you choose this morning? Well, if you want to choose life, well, you have to know God's word. You have to be exposed to God's word. And one of the things about this covenant renewal ceremony that I want you guys to realize is that that's exactly what we do every Sunday morning. It's a rhythm of grace. It's a means of grace. Every Sunday morning we come and we gather. We're called into the house of God. We confess our sins. We are renewed in our relationship with God. We hear his word declared. And your families here, your little ones, and the people that you're bringing with you. It's a means by which we are restored in relationship to God. And so let me encourage you. This weekly rhythm of worship, it's so vital for the people of God to participate in this covenant renewal ceremony. Let me encourage you that way. Make it a part of your life. Make it a part of your family's life. Well, here's the bad news this morning. I gotta bring you some bad news. The bad news is that we're all, we're all gonna disobey at one time or another. We're all gonna disobey. We're all gonna actually choose the way of the curse. We want to choose life, but we choose the way of the curse. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We can't help ourselves. We choose other things besides God. We give our love to other things besides God. We don't love our neighbors the way we ought. We choose the way of the curse. And here's the reality. If we were back in Israel's time, we would mess it up just like them, right? We would lose the land. We would be caught in exile the curses of the covenant would fall upon us just like them. But here is the good news this morning, that God has not left a way back for his people. He has given them a way back. And we see this in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. And here, here's something really significant to, to understand the altar is on the mount of cursing. It's on the mount of disobedience. And why is that? Because all of us are under the curse. All of us need a way back to God. And the altar is pointing to us. The only way back to God is through the altar. And what does the altar signify? It's a place of offering and it's a place of sacrifice. It points to the need for sins to be forgiven. How? By the payment of a penalty, by a sacrifice, by the shedding of blood. We all deserve the curses of the covenant. But the good news is God has given us. He has made a way back for us. And for us who are New Testament believers, we see very clearly now 
what they could only see dimly by those sacrifices. We see that Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. The perfect son of God was sacrificed so that we could be restored back in relationship with him. And so let me encourage you this morning. Let me invite you. If you're here this morning, you've yet to follow Christ by faith. Let me urge you to trust in him. Don't have it in your head that I need obedience to the law. God requires obedience to the law. You're never going to get back to God through obedience of the law, but you will get back to God through the obedience of faith. So I invite you this morning to put your trust, put your faith in the Son of God for you. Would you pray with me? Mighty God and Heavenly Father, you are a merciful God. You are a faithful God. You keep your promises to your people. And we can trust your promises no matter what's happening in our own lives, whether we blow it big time, whether we've wandered far from you for a long period of time, we see that your promises still remain. You are a merciful God, streams of mercy never ceasing. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. We thank you that you've provided a way back to you through your son. Lord, it's him that we worship this morning. It's him that we see as beautiful this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.